Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Hey, everyone. I am, I know I say this every time, but I'm really excited <laughs> to have our guest today. This topic is a topic that I am personally very excited about because I meet with so many families that have a, a, a range of relationship challenges, let's say, or opportunities, we could say. <laughs> but I have with me today, Kimberly Best, and Kimberly's an RN. She has a master's degree and she's a mediator and a conflict manager. Do you, you go by Kim or Kimberly? I should ask. You can, you can call me Kim. That's fine. Okay. It's easier. <laughs> well, I just found out that Kim lives in Nashville and I would love to hear just to start us off. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into this line of work. Give us a little background, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. So a very long time ago, <laughs> I worked in nursing, graduated in 1980, and I worked in every intensive care known to man, literally. And I worked in trauma, and ultimately, I worked in the emergency department. At one point, because you do see a lot of suffering, I decided to choose change careers and uh, went to graduate school in psychology. And then I was like, well, I have the heart of an ER nurse <laughs> and psychology is a little slow. <laughs> and so I actually went back into nursing and then I went through a really, really bad divorce. And there's nothing like walking the acrimony of the legal system to long for a better way for people to resolve problems. So I went to Hofstra University in New York and studied a little bit of transformative mediation, which is just one style. And from I realized at that point that most of us have not learned the skills that it takes to resolve conflict. And it is a skill set that we all can learn. It's just we haven't learned because conflict is one thing we don't talk about, right? So yeah, I went to graduate school after that and got my master's in conflict management. And I keep my nursing license just to keep up with that. But I practice solely in mediation and conflict management. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. You said one of the things I just want to jump right on that you said is this reality that we as a society avoid conflict. And right. and I've heard I've heard that before that we don't talk about death and dying and we don't talk about conflict. Laura, that's hilarious because when people ask me what I do for a living, I say I do the two things nobody wants to talk about, which is conflict and end of life. End of life. <laughs> and then people take a step back because they're like, all of a sudden I become very scary. <laughs> yeah, no, we need to talk about these things because they're both things that are normal, both of them, and they're both going to show up. And if we're prepared for them, we can manage them much better because there's a way for both of them, both, both preparing for end of life and preparing for and learning how to deal with conflict. As you're talking, I'm thinking about well, myself and people I know in my life and the clients I work with. And most of us, I guess I could just speak for myself. I get on this hamster wheel and you just go through your your life, your day to day, you fill it up with things to do. You distract yourself sometimes. Um, I know a lot of caregivers 
that I meet with and, and provide counseling and consultations to, we, we talk about this a lot, that often caregivers don't have the luxury mm-hmm. of being able to slow down and have self-reflection because mm-hmm. they're just surviving. So what would you say if, you know, just to get the conversation going, what would you say would be helpful tools for a a stressed, a person that is facing so much and how would they know, uh, you know, what would be the signs? I get, I don't know if that's a, a perfect question or not, but, but really what, what would the tools be? What are the first few things that they could be looking towards doing to support themselves if they were in a state of crisis already? Yeah. So I guess there are a couple things that I'd like to say about that. And the first one is where you are is normal given the circumstances you're under. So the first thing is don't add to this by beating yourself up for being there. Because I say that caregiving is you're a superhero. Like no, no matter what, you're a superhero because it is hard and the word relentless, but meaning that it's just omnipresent. It's a lot of unknowns. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that sometimes it's too much. I think to find a place where you won't be judged for having those moments and don't judge yourself either. That's the first stop, right? But find a safe place where you can talk about these things acknowledging that you're there and that it's okay to be there would be number one. Number two, I tell people to try to remember, you can put it on your schedule to try to remember every so often that you reward yourself. Like a lot of, a lot of caregivers aren't even getting paid for their work, right? So reward yourself, put it on the calendar, whatever time you know feeds you to do that once a week. Think, plan ahead like you plan for all your other stuff and put it in there. And then mostly you need a support system. We all need a support system. So wherever you can find that and preferably in a place where you won't be judged. I think when you're a caregiver, sometimes understanding how much judgment comes to you helps us to realize that maybe we don't want to be that. But I think of Brene Brown, who talks about being in the arena and you're in the arena like this is a battle right now. And if you're not in there, if people aren't in there with you, they don't have the right to sit in the stands and say how you're doing it, to criticize you. So I think remembering that as well. And I guess the last thing in relation to that that I would say is own what's yours, but don't wear what other people tell you that you know isn't true. So we get these criticisms, we get other people's two senses, and it hurts. The assumption that what they're saying is true, only you know your truth. So take a moment with those things, think through them. And if it doesn't fit you, it's not your problem, it's the other person's problem, right? So discerning what's your problem and what's the other person's problem in situation of conflicts is helpful to keep you upright and on your feet. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. I, and I'm thinking as you're talking about how, when human beings are faced with stress, we tend to not have that level of discernment. Like we might, when we're feeling level and grounded and (laughs) so this is good. I, this is, this episode is a reminder to folks to that. It's okay to 
feel what you're feeling and honor the experience that you're in mm. and a reminder that you don't have to take on hmm. everything and you don't have when i mean when i say take on i'm i'm, I'm talking about what you were saying uh, accepting other people's opinions as truth what you said is priceless around when we're in a state our thinking, rational reasoning brain is not able to work. So I think it's important to not make decisions in that time, in that space, and, and to try not to come to conclusions. Our brains will tell us a story, right, about what the other person's doing and what's going on. Staying in that space and recognizing something is hard and not making the decision until you are back to yourself again. And if that means writing down things that are just anything you want to write, and I tell people they can burn it so that they can actually watch it, not in your house, please, but <laughs> you can send it off in some really symbolic way to lighten it or write it all down and then go back and read it the next day. But try not to offshoot it. My favorite mediator, one of them on the planet, William Urey, who wrote Getting to Yes, and is just with the Harvard Negotiation Project. He's incredible. He says something that stuck with me forever. He says, speak in anger or text or email, and you will make the best speech you'll ever regret. <laughs> right? Yes. And you know what? I, I think it's, it's so human nature to when we are in crisis and our sympathetic system is flying and we are activated, there's this sense of urgency to act. And that's right. So it kind of, I just, it kind of goes against what our bodies are telling us to do. That's exactly right. The biology of it. You know what you did there, Laura? You took a deep breath after you said that. And <laughs> that deep breath, was, I mean, how symbolic was that deep breath? Exactly. So yes, you're right. We are hardwired this way. But the thing is, we don't need necessarily those. There aren't dinosaurs chasing us. Right. But here's the thing. The brain can't discern between an insult and a dinosaur. Like it reacts the same and that's a pain one. But that's why we have evolved enough that we need to recognize what those triggers feel like and look like and just slow down for a minute. Just get your feet back on the ground again. Yeah. I, I've been doing so much work personally myself with recognizing that I am not my thoughts and I am not. Oh, yeah. And because I, you know, I think that we just, we identify so much and exactly what you said, our body, our physical biology doesn't know the different when it's being fed a thought, which triggers an emotion, right? Our bodies react as if, and so kind of removing ourselves a little bit and being more of the observer in that, which, oh man, talk about a challenge because we've been programmed it's part of being a human being right <laughs> and we're not taught that this brings us back to the one of the first things you said is that we are not taught how to deal with mm -hmm. conflict we don't something we don't talk about it's they're not skills that we're aware of and so um when you were mentioning those points one of the points that you had mentioned was the the recognition the acknowledgement first and foremost and when you can recognize that 
that allows you that moment to step back and reassess how you want to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the next step, so say, say we act in our trigger. I, I'm going to tell a quick, funny story. My, my, I talk about my son all the time. He just loves it. He's, he's now 20, but when he was about 16, I had five kids. My youngest was the only one still home. I always tucked my kids in bed at night and he's about 16 and I go to tuck him in and I look around and his room is a mess. And I'm like, son, what is this? And he's like, what? This, 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 and this. I don't see anything. Well, it is a trigger for me to know a reality and someone else deny it's there. And I know where that came from and it's trigger. So about the time that I wanted to pick up a pillow and put it over his little face, <laughs> instead, I turn around and walk out of the room, which is conflict avoidant, which is not a good way to treat people. I'm walking down the steps and I hear this voice behind me say, and you call yourself a conflict manager. <laughs> And the thing I loved about that is it reminded me that we are all human and we will react by our triggers sometimes. But the difference that we can do that we often don't do is go back and repair that. So when someone says something to you in a triggered state, Laura, I hate you and I hate your podcast. (laughs) And then we walk away and say, there, we have their truth. We have the farthest thing from their truth. We have their reaction. Our truth is our response, right? So to go back and make space, if you're the receiver of this, to know that that came from a triggered place. And yes, it hurt. That's fair. But that wasn't coming from a place in our brain that actually thinks and means what it says. But to go back and repair those is what we don't do. And there's a lot of reasons for that that are on both sides. But just imagine if we could repair those moments that are, like you said, just human moments. Yeah. And this really leads us to this idea of conflict within our families and how we have a lifetime. And when we're children, especially, you know, when we're taking in all this information without the the critical analysis that can come with whether this information is true or not. And then we are in positions of powerlessness and being at total mercy of our our caregivers, our our parents. You know, I'm just, I'm really taking in uh, everything you're saying. And I'm thinking about how a lifetime of dynamics between Mm -hmm. family members is absolutely going to be popping up during a time of crisis or a time of stress or time of big decision-making or a time of when the family dynamics are changing and the role there's role reversals and grief and loss going on. I mean, what a ripe time for, even if for years there's been the status quo, <laughs> if there's some unfinished business going on or some you know dynamics that haven't been worked through, it wouldn't be a surprise that it would be popping up. I couldn't have said that better myself. That's that's exactly what happens. Exactly. It's kind of becomes the perfect storm, right? Yeah. Which is why having a plan is a great idea as part of that. But yeah, well, you're right. Me, what do you mean by plan? What what would that even look oh, like? Oh gosh. I, I don't I don't know if you and I had ever talked about this, but I wrote a book called How to Live Forever, a guide to writing the final chapter of your life story. Oh, fantastic. No, I didn't know this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So because in my nursing career, we see a lot of people 
whose families are called upon to make decisions that are literally life and death for not having a plan on how to handle this. And struggling families, people who struggle to communicate under the best of circumstances, dark meat or white meat at Thanksgiving, all of a sudden have to make these life and death decisions. And it becomes about power. It becomes about fear. It becomes about the unknown. So my book is actually a few things. It is about talking the legal plans and the lists of stuff that you need legally. It's about making the health care decisions and the price for not, right? So the medicine will err on the side without you saying otherwise of keeping someone alive. But we know from people who are kept alive that there's a difference between being alive and quality of life. And there's a lot of suffering that happens because people don't recognize those differences. So that's one of the ways we can prepare. What do you want done under certain circumstances based on what is life to you, not being on a machine? And and when we talk about dying, like this goes full circle back to the beginning of our conversation, when we recognize that it's not a failure of the medical system, it's not a punishment for eating bacon, it's it just has to happen and we, we prepare well for it. You said something yourself about how being prepared in a certain situation was like a gift. So besides the medical, the healthcare, it's about relationships. It's ending without regret, being able to heal relationships. And the whole theme of the story, why the title is what it is, is that I believe that our lives are our story and our story is our legacy. Like how we lived it all the way to the end is what we leave behind as our legacy. So let's get it right. And by right, it means the way you want, because you more or less get to live the way you want. You can go out of life the way you want to. I also talk about celebration of life planning too. So just, I wish we had conversations on this. So we know we're honoring what someone wants and it takes so much of the stress out of it, of trying to figure it out. I do see people who older people know they're going to die. People with end-stage diseases know they're going to die. I met a woman a few months ago who said, you know, this is easier for me than for my family. And she's right because we, our bodies know we're going to die at some point. We fight it until it becomes more of a reality than not. But when people want to talk about it to their children or their caregivers, it's so often it's met with no, no, no. That's not going to happen. That's, that's more than denial, right? Like that's So the person who's dying has to carry that alone. They don't even get to share that. And in the sharing of that, Laura, it is, it is a precious gift that no one can take back from you, that you shared one of the most intimate things, the two most intimate things that happened in your life are your birth and your death, and that you can share that openly with someone. It's just, it's a beautiful legacy to leave behind. Yeah. A sacred opportunity. That's the word I use in my book. It is sacred. I mean, I've watched it, you know, I've watched it so many times and every single time that's how I came up with my title in my head. But from the very first person I saw die, I saw a book and I, I would wonder what was in all this and then watching it close. And I mean, it's sad, yeah. but like life has sad stuff in it. There's loss, there's grief, but there's also love. There's also the story. I mean, there's so much in this that I think we need to look at it and not pretend it's not there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much I want to say to this. It was so beautifully said. 
one of the things I see, especially when I was working in facilities and, and as a counselor for older adults and, and those with dementia, is that no matter what stage of dementia someone's in, there is still a desire to work through unfinished business. Right. And, you know, Naomi Files' work, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she focuses a lot on that, this piece of how do you reach people? And you and I, I'm going to kind of touch, we were having a brief conversation before we started recording about the power of connection and being seen and mm -hmm. how important that is. And so when, as you're saying these things, I'm thinking again with conflict, especially with family members, especially those that we came into this world and life with, what an opportunity to grow and to learn and to heal and to up-level, if you will, <laughs> here in sitting with something that is so uncomfortable. And whether it's on behalf of a, a person that you're caring for and you're needing to come to some agreement, um, like the example you shared, putting, and I don't even know if the, the, that's the right word, is putting your own stuff aside, or maybe it's more just seeing above that, seeing above all of that. What an opportunity to, not just for yourself, but for the whole family unit, for the person who is at the forefront of, of the need. Yeah, just beautiful. And for all the generations to follow, oh, Laura. Yes. I'm so I mean, glad it's true. I mean, it's just true. Yeah. Yeah. We have an opportunity to do it different. I remember saying to my dad in his struggle at the end of life, I remember saying to him that he was modeling for me that stage of life. And that was me trying to encourage him, maybe <laughs> raise a little bit of dare because, you know, it's hard. It's not that it's easy, but it's so much easier if we, if we shine light on it a dark place if we shine light on it if we see it it's no longer dark now it's lit so and you can't um, take that away once you have you it. can't take that away no no and it's hard i mean that's why i do i i one piece of my work is having conversations with families on that it's a skill too you can try it but no it's going to be hard and you might have to stop and take a break if it kind of collapses a little don't give up I either get help or agree to revisit it, but it's hard because it's new. And Laura, one thing I always say about how we try and things like caregiving and end of life and everything we do, I say every single day is an experiment. This hit me one day. Every day is an experiment. Every moment in a day is one we've never been in before. Yeah. And sometimes we'll get it right. And sometimes we'll swing and miss. And that's normal. That's okay. But we can go back and learn from that and proceed another way instead of shaming and blaming when we do get it wrong. Yes, absolutely. Every every moment is an opportunity. We always have a choice. I love that. One of the things that I was sharing, you know, that I'm practicing on myself, another piece of that is that not to shame or get on myself for quote failing, but to my goal is to see how quickly I can get back into the space that I, the head space, heart space that I want to be in, instead of being upset that I got out of it to begin yeah. with, we will, how quickly can I recognize it and get back in? And that's been really helpful on a lot of levels. 
A perspective shift. Yeah, perspective Isn't shift. Isn't it? It's the exact same thing, but you're looking at it differently. And right. it makes all the difference in the world. You're not sugarcoating it, but it's the exact same thing. You're just trying a way that works. I think everything works until it doesn't anymore. Like, you know, and when it doesn't anymore, instead of doing the same thing that didn't work, we need, if we stop and shift like you did, find a new way, there is other ways to do things. Is it unique? I'm, I'm appreciating you so much as we're talking. And is it unique for mediators or conflict resolution professionals to have a background in healthcare or um, mm -hmm. psychology? Because I can see the, the psychology. The value. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So the majority of mediators are attorney mediators. When you practice as a mediator, you cannot practice law, even if you are an attorney, when you're in the space of a mediator. A lot of attorneys don't do well with the emotional side of things because they have a different agenda and it's coming to agreement. Like a, some people see mediation as a, a tool for coming to agreement and it can be, and it often is to some kind of agreement, even if that agreement is to agree to disagree. But we're also talking with people's most vulnerable, I feel like it's their soul. Like if you show me where you're showing me where you hurt, and for me, uh, I think if you're going to find a mediator and you know it's something, find a mediator with a background in either conflict management or who's taken some communication or some, some psychology, because at the end of the day, it's not ever about who gets grandma's silverware. It's always about what that represents, you know, and someone not trained in the level of handling these things this way are going to be focusing on, well, we'll just divide the forks in half. And they will never feel, you will never get the peace that resolving it from the inside out yes. can give you. So, you know, like, I think it's a little bit rare, but I hope it gets more because, yeah. I can see the importance of that. There's this saying that a greater emotion will always override a weaker one. And what I think of when I hear that is exactly what you're saying, that there may be this goal to solve a problem or come to an agreement, but if there's a greater emotion that mm -hmm. is at play that isn't resolved, that's the one that is always going to, to be <laughs> in the forefront. And, and people don't realize it either. I mean, how many folks have you met with or, or myself too, that will admit in a safe space that I don't know why I'm reacting this way. I yeah, don't yeah. know why I'm hanging on, you know, to this outcome or goal. And that's always such a, first, it's so insightful for the person to actually recognize that, but then it's an opportunity to dig a little bit deeper and offer some. I'm, I'm picturing freedom at the end of that. Like once you know what that is, and it's about about fear. It's going to be about something. What am I really afraid of here or need? What do I need in this? And I, I think naming my needs is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because I'm not used to saying, what is it I need? We don't get raised with people saying, tell me what you need. They tell us more how to behave. So identifying those things is kind of hard work, but when you see it, it's so freeing. I'm writing notes here. <laughs> I see that. Good. <laughs> it's so freeing. <laughs> so maybe we can hop in. I'd love to talk a little bit about 
do you mind sharing maybe some of the most common conflicts that you run up against with in relation to caregiving and caregiving? Yeah. Yeah. So every family and every situation has its, its uniqueness. And sometimes in the legal field, it's like, oh yeah, divorce. It's just another one of those. Everybody's story is a little bit different because we are all unique, but there are always themes around what you described so eloquently before old power struggles, birth order, old hurts. So it shows up in making decisions about where people live, who's going to be primary caregiver, often around money, because that is scary. There's a lot of expense involved. Who has a voice? Who gets information? We argue about what what level of healthcare. All the things in my book are like, listen, if we talk about this ahead of time, we won't have to argue about it then. It'll, you know, make it really clear. But it's a hard time because it's a scary time. So it seems to be a time where, like you described before, everything the box just opens and all the stuff comes out, which happens when you put a lifetime of stuff in a box. You know, eventually it's gonna pop. And this is kind of the, literally the straw that breaks the camel's back for some families. So I think it's mostly about past relationships is what it all comes down to. And I think the second biggest thing would be just the fear of losing the person that we love. You know, there's there's just a lot, a lot around that to coming to peace with that. I do think you asked me about a story, one of my favorite stories a family I worked with, the gentleman came to me, he was a former football player, and he'd been diagnosed with a, a disease that would kill him pretty quickly, and he would progressively become paralyzed. And here's this big dude of a dude guy, and he comes into my office, and he says, you know, I have this diagnosis, I'm good with God, I'm just going to wait to die. And I said, well, you can do that. That's an option because you never take away somebody's option. You know, that's their lifeline in that moment, right? You can do that. But let me tell you a little story about my dad. My dad was a lot like you and he got a diagnosis and he said the same thing. And then he lived for 10 more years, but he didn't live. You know, I said, you're modeling for your children. I don't know what else you impact you might have, but are there other things you can consider in that? So he did an amazing job throughout his whole journey. He did a, he, they had, that family had such a good sense of humor. He kept his sense of humor and I, I watched him get more and more paralyzed. Well, eventually it came to the point they were ready to call in hospice. And I'm going to tell you, Laura, every word I'm going to tell you now is the absolute truth how it happened. So they call in hospice, they interview a nurse a couple places and they decide on one. And she goes out to make a call and his wife turns to me and says, what do we do if when he's in hospice and he chokes, do, do I call 911? And we talked about that, but I said, well, you can. I said, but they'll take him to the hospital then. And then there are things that they'll have to do. Is that what you want to do? Because I knew they didn't, but she needed to decide that again. And she said, no, I don't. And she turned to her husband and she said, listen, you need to decide pretty quickly what you're going to leave for our three kids. They were all adult kids. And he starts laughing. And he starts laughing. He starts coughing some. We figured he would choking was probably what would kill him. And he 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 laughed and he coughed out finally that he wanted to leave three cups of ashes because he wanted to be cremated. Mm -hmm. And his wife starts laughing. His daughter's in the corner looking horrified. 
And, <laughs> and I look at him and I say, you know, if you die right now, I'm not going to help you. <laughs> and which, of course, made him laugh more. But the thing was, I left there, and this makes me want to cry every time I tell a story. If they hadn't had that conversation, wow. if they hadn't been prepared, would they have been laughing? And when he died, I just had, I just had coffee with her this past Saturday. He died a couple years ago. She never had the amount of grief that she expected. He was the love of her life. And I say to her, I think it's because you poured in, like you don't have regret, right? Like you walked this walk, the two of you walked every single moment the way you wanted to walk. Yeah. That's wow. pretty powerful. Oh, <laughs> that is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's so the power of story, the power of sharing experience, the power, like you said earlier, of modeling to mm. others. And so recognizing that not only were they modeling that to their children, but they were modeling that to people that were witnessing their journey. And it's, you know, now ripple effect onto those of us that are right. able to hear and listen, um, talk about legacy, right? That's talk exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's why uh, when I wrote my book, you know, how to live forever, that's, that's what I meant by that, the legacy. And I see people slip up from the past. I mean, it does affect the future in ways you don't have any idea that it's going to show up. But I tell her every time I see her that, you know, I share this story with so many people and it makes our journey just more poignant for knowing that we really are always sharing our story. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, that is powerful. Let me think, I'm curious if you don't mind, because I'm guessing, you know, we're just meeting and I have some sense of an idea about what life might look like for you, at least professionally, working with families who are in crisis and mm. having conflict and your background in, in nursing and some pretty intense situations as well. So you, I'm putting together this piece that you, you're not unfamiliar with trauma or chaos or, you know, uncomfortable or unpleasant situations. I should use quotes there. Yeah. How do you take care of yourself? What keeps you doing this work? And yeah, tell us a little about that. What a great question. Yeah. So I, I will be just rawly honest. <laughs> From watching, we don't have to be old to die. I had a niece die at five years old from a brainstem glioma. One moment she was fine and she died within months. <laughs> I've lived in that space where you can see how precious life is and every moment in it. And I sometimes think I'm a little obsessive about making every moment matter because <laughs> it's hard for me to take a break in all honesty. But I also check that with, am I living my truth? Does this feel true? And it does. It does feel true. So I do struggle with, I guess my bar is if I can't show up well for someone else, then I know that I need to do something. But I also think I kind of have, I don't know what my limit's going to be, but I feel it when it's there. And maybe I have to take a down day or whatever. But maybe in some ways, like you said, because of my background being with trauma, it's 
I just see that that's how the world is. Sometimes, like we'll all have moments of that. And I've, I've learned to be in that space. It sounds like you're not uh, afraid of it. As unpleasant as it may be, there's a difference between being holding fear with it. Yeah, I have to say the truth is like we think that life is supposed to. I don't know how many people say this shouldn't happen or it's not supposed to. And I always respond, who told you that? Because it's not true. This is life. Hopefully, <laughs> the beauty outweighs the hard times, but all of us are going to have some really, really, really hard times. And I think that's another thing that we need to prepare our kids to know. Like sometimes it's great and sometimes it hurts and sometimes it's this, but it's not Disneyland. It's not. It's life. I've never met a person with character that didn't come from hardship. Like we grow from that and it's just part of being human. Is it the fun part? No. But it's the part you'll remember because of the transformation that happens, because of the connection that happens, because even in its pain, it's beautiful. Yeah, you can feel it. There's a deep knowing there. Oh, Kim, <laughs> thank you. This conversation is so powerful. And I just want to thank you so much for showing up and, and just being really open about your experience professionally and personally. And as I say that, I, I'm recognizing how in the work that we do, I don't think you can separate that, right? The professional and the personal. Let me just throw in real quick that I, I think that's true. For, I think the thing that I've learned in my many years right now is that our authenticity is our superpower, not our strength. Our strength is not our superpower. Our best moments are, but our real moments that sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's easy. This is what I struggle with. And if we can start accepting that in ourselves and then start accepting that we all have this and in each other too, I think we can bridge some of these very big chasms that we have. Beautifully said. Wow. Beautifully said. <laughs> Kim, how can folks find you if, if they want to learn more about your work or learn more about you? Yeah, I <laughs> Google. <laughs> I think that if you Google conflict for. <laughs> But bestconflictsolutions.com is my website. If you Google my name, I think you'll find me pretty quickly. I'm happy to talk to groups about the book. I do have a free PDF on my website. If people, sometimes church groups or other groups choose to do a book study on it. When that happens, I'd love to, I'd love to jump in. Let me know. I'd love to jump in for one of the days of that and just chat with whoever's doing that. But yeah, that's, that's the best way of finding me. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I will definitely put all of these things in the show notes for folks so that they can have access to it. Do you have a social media presence at all? Oh, I do. I'm on LinkedIn. It's Kimberly underscore, I think a underscore best for Twitter. And it's not really anything with my name is more my brand than best conflict solutions. So I have a Facebook page that is best conflict solutions. And I I think all of my social media is on my web page. So people can find yeah, that. Yeah. As well. Instagram, Twitter. I don't do TikTok because I can't dance. But <laughs> 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 I'm not that entertaining. Okay. <laughs> you have many other gifts. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't one of them. Don't sing and don't dance. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Again, thank you so much, Kim. And I know this is 
a really helpful conversation. I know it's going to be for so many. It certainly was for me. My pleasure. It, it was just wonderful to meet you, Laura. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or would like to send us a message, you can send it to hello at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Please also consider following us at Life on Repeat Podcast, either on Instagram or Facebook. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.